Hello and welcome to the Red Olive Fibonacci podcast, the podcast all about data and analytics, where we hear from leading specialists and get their take on the industry. I'm your host, Nikki Rudd. Today, I'm joined by Ben Barris, Group Head of Data at Centaur Media, a provider of market intelligence and publisher of publications such as eConsultancy, Design Week and The Lawyer. Ben is responsible for planning and execution of the data strategy across all the digital subscription products that the company runs. He has nearly two decades of experience working in a range of digital business operations. He is a marketing technology expert and a specialist in using data to transform digital processes in both large and small business environments. Our conversation covers the importance of building data collection in a project from the outset, why it's crucial to really understand your audience, and a new way to think about what data we collect, and whether it's worth sending email to the people on your email list that never open it. What are we waiting for? Let's go. I started off as a, a server-side developer, a back-end developer uh, back in the day and uh, got more into analytics and controlling data flows between systems and various sorts of integration work. So when I left and um, worked in a small company as a technical director, I, pretty much every single aspect of the business was data-led in some way. It was effectively an affiliate marketing organization, so all the revenue came through all digital tracking and and everything else. So my journey into data was more led by the need for me to make stuff work. So hooking up various types of systems and making sure things spoke to each other and that clients and suppliers and contractors all knew kind of what we were billing or why we were billing and make sure the right messages run out to the right people. My experience then mainly got involved with making sure everything was hooked up and working together and the various right bits of data were connected into the right systems. And I moved on to be consultancy very much along those same lines, joining their marketing team to help really drive their marketing segmentation and messaging. I remember Ashley, on my first day at the job, one of their events, he announced me to the room, one of his speeches he was doing, they've made their first data hire within the organization. And I think it was telling for a consultancy that they saw the need to put their first data hire into the marketing team. I wasn't joining finance or sales or back-end devs. It was very much focused around the marketing efforts. And from there, I've moved from marketing into sort of core central systems and then trying to organize what is effectively a transitioning publisher from an old sort of print model into a digital transformed online content subscription business and all the associated systems and services that go along with that. What's the steps that Centre has gone through in moving from that sort of traditional print publishing into a fully digital online publisher and also events and trainer as well, I think? You do training as well, don't you? Well, effectively, all of those businesses, the events, the training, you know, the webinars, the reporting, all comes from valued content. So whether you're a publisher that sticks words out on print or your publisher that sticks words out on the screen or talks words at events or you know it's that expert knowledge and understanding that people are coming to you for and i think to some degree the business to business market obviously is transitioning more easily than maybe the b2c market will because obviously you've got very distinct niche audiences that they're coming to you for that kind of expertise. The whole sort of digital transformation experience obviously isn't limited to publishing and there's been part of the core 
ethos of the business for the last few years in the way that it's helped other businesses through their digital transformation efforts as well. So it's been a really interesting learning curve to see how different industries are tackling some common transformational problems, really, that I know that we've gone through that you see them facing. And it, it is sometimes difficult for our business in as much as we talk about how people should be doing it. And then behind the scenes, you do see some of the situations where actually that's quite a challenging thing to do for organisations. With all of the publications that were in Centel's portfolio, if you like, how did you go about it? Have you sort of taken it so that you've taken certain publications and then moved them on? Or has it been a company-wide thing? What are the steps that you sort of taken to get to where you are now? A lot of the transformation has been mostly around standardization of services. So the portfolios obviously were all effectively individual businesses or run as individual businesses in their own way, had their own reason for doing their own events, their own magazines. And I think the way we've approached it is through a certain level of standardization. So especially around the marketing technology, make sure we're using single services across the business and harmonizing a lot of data systems and integrations. It's about making businesses aware of the opportunity they've got from the services that are available to them by creating almost like a standard approach to how they can then manage their business online. Some businesses transitioned much better than others. We've gone through a kind of a phase withdrawal of the print publications, a more sort of effective push of online events and face-to-face type expertise sharing, networking type events, and really a big push around bringing our corporate clients into an online environment. So getting people more used to changing their habits from expecting to pick up a corporate magazine on a reception desk through to actually them logging in or viewing a set of blog articles or something on a phone on the train on the way in in the morning. And it's that sort of habitual change, I think, that has been slow and gradual over the course of the sort of last five years, where we've been able to sort of not slowly substitute one for the other, but as people get more used to consuming content online, we've ridden that wave along with the sort of the audience that we've got. You can offer more value services online than you can in a magazine. And it's about trying to supply valued content in a mechanism that works for the consumer that maybe a magazine can't. There are certain publications that I can't say should never transition, but you look at Creative Review, for example, it's a beautiful magazine. It's beautifully printed. The artwork's amazing. It's for a creative audience. You can only supplement that experience online. You you can't necessarily replace that tangible feeling of holding that beautiful thing, if you see what I mean. It is easier with a smaller number of publications. We were 50, 48 brands or something along those lines. We've cut that down to two main portfolios now, which we can really support. It's a massive task, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, from a data perspective on the transformation side, There's a whole lot of work around just managing those portfolios and sort of standardizing stuff, making sure everyone's got the associated data they need. But there are also a lot of massive similarities in the way that specific B2B audience operates, how you target them from a marketing perspective, how you understand what the market sizing is. From that side of things, the whole B2B data environment, I can't say it's easier, but (laughs) at least you've got some pointers with some fairly standardized variables there that you can work with. Obviously, when the publications were print, there was a subscription model. With the online, how many questions have you asked of the people who are subscribing about what they actually want? How do you manage that? 
the registration systems that we've got across the various products, it's a balance of getting a level of information out that you need in order to be able to operate the service. By operating the service, I include marketing. It's not upsell. It's about delivering value content. So there's certain standardized fields that you kind of need to have available understanding someone's level of seniority, for example, or, you know, the actual company they work for, the industry they're in, that sort of stuff. That's all fairly required. But at the same time, we've shied away from asking more questions than that. The reason for that is we probably became a bit more sophisticated in the way that we understand user behavior behind the scenes. So the idea was we could trim down our data collection forms in order to supplement it with specific behavioral information. I think to some degree, the issues that we have around data collection tend to be ownership of forms. Is it the product teams that own the forms because they want to churn the people through the forms as quickly as possible with as least barriers as possible? We've tried things like progressive profiling, you know, other types of ways of extracting other types of information out during the course of a visit. The move to first-party data being all-powerful and it's not news to us. We've always had paywalls, gateways, soft or hard paywalls to force people to pay or to register before they can view our content. So for us, we've always dealt in first-party data. We deal very little in third-party data. But the ability to be able to really judge someone's intention via their behavior then requires a massive amount of work behind the scenes to ensure the content they're viewing is appropriately tagged so that you can really draw some strong conclusions for that if you've got an editorial team are more and more favoring the idea of a sort of a transparent value exchange a sort of zero party data approach where you just literally go and say to someone why do you want to use us what is it we can deliver for you that's actually going to be a value okay we'll just stick to that and we won't do any of the other stuff around the sides if you tell us you're not interested in it we just won't do that i think just how you convert that into some sort of tangible data collection thing that works it'd be very straightforward for us as a data team to implement that it would be very hard for a business to turn down the opportunity to sell someone something that maybe they've implied they weren't that interested in i think that's probably the hardest battle across the business it's like you send an email right when's an email ever been (laughs) when have you ever seen email open rates that vary massively away from what generally they always are. You know, if you look at what's a 25% open rate on an email, you send it to 75% of the people that aren't interested, but yet you've got 100% of a list. You're going to use that list every time, and every time you get 25% open rate for it. It's like, well, why why are we sending it to the other 75% of people all the time? It's because the business can't let go of the fact that their list is this big, and they have to use their list, because if they don't use their list, they're not exploiting the value of their data. When in reality, 75% of the people, they just don't care less anyway. I was going to say, because obviously there's changes in cookie law and, you know, how you can remarket stuff and what people are looking at and, and that sort of a whole intent data. Is that something that you are looking at as a business for kind of future, as in what you could predict somebody would be interested in to make sure that you're tailoring that experience for them? I think that intent data will be more important when we look to associate with new markets will try and it's difficult to some degree in some of our markets because we have got great coverage they're not big pools you can pretty much identify all the people that are in the pool already 
you know, the account managers know the market. They know the people they're dealing with. They know why person X isn't buying. We're not talking trying to sell 3 million widgets a year to 10 pence each or whatever. It's high value sales, high value corporate subscriptions to big companies who work in established markets. To some degree, we're always fishing in the same pools. And that's only going to work for so long when we have exhausted those pools. That's when we look to extend out into other areas, I guess. That's when we'll start to really leverage on building out regionally diverse audiences, changing our editorial content approaches, looking to find lookalikes, all that kind of stuff will start to really come into its own. It does to some degree in some parts of our business, and those parts of the business tend to be the ones that are more e-commerce focused at the moment, whether they're selling events or training products or something like that, that are separate to so maybe a corporate subscription. We'll pick out specific product areas of the business to do, not like skunk works, but, you know, sort of adopt certain levels of new approaches, different ways to approach new challenges. And they'll take it on in a little structured way and then bring that back to the business as a case study. That's kind of how we adopt new technology now. So if one part of the business starts to use something and it really sort of works, we'll then introduce that out to other parts of the business or maybe look to remove a couple of existing ways of doing business and replacing it with a new structure that's been proven in one smaller area of the business. We can be a lot more agile that way. We can resource for it a lot better as well because you don't then have a cross portfolio project group trying to administer you know, an 18-month project, you're dealing with a couple of brand managers and a product team or, you know, a marketing team. Everyone's getting involved. Everyone learns how to use the product. You can really make some changes quite quickly that way. The approach to marketing segmentation is kind of my background more than anything else. All the old sort of standard marketing approaches, clustering, you know, segmentation analysis, all that kind of stuff, they're the same as they ever have been. There's different tools and things available to do them all now. But that kind of approach and things is very much the same as it always has been. In a business that's so led by people that have been in the industry for a while, people that understand the customers so well, the role of data to challenge their belief. If you're coming at someone with a fresh report, certainly don't know about, it's very easy to gain their trust and bring them on board with what you're trying to tell them. If you're dealing with someone who's been an account manager in the industry for 10, 15 years, and they've spoken to all the people and they're very clear on why people buy and why they don't buy, what role is there for data? What can you offer them that potentially they don't already know? So you're kind of setting yourselves up almost like an antithesis of their belief in order to try and push them in a different direction. You're almost getting involved in psychology in order to do your day-to-day work. You kind of have to position everything that you're doing in such a way that it allows people to change their worldview. It's quite interesting because when we're talking about kind of subscription models and stuff like that, you're always thinking about prospects or customers and it being an external thing. But it sounds there that actually you're using your data strategy as well to actually help and change behavior internally as well. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I would say that's probably more true than it is us providing our data to assist the external part of the business and the customer part of the business in as much as you know data is the only way you will change people's minds with digital transformation data transformation is always a subset of it it shouldn't be but digital transformation all the gloss gets put into the website 
the process, the conversion rates, the e-commerce, you know, all the flashy stuff and the, you know, we're going to be remarketing this and we're going to be, you know, using LinkedIn and it's going to be great. You're going to see our adverts everywhere and it's all that stuff. And then when it comes to actually the nuts and bolts of the data transformation, people forget that actually there's a very different set of skills involved in a business with regard to how it uses data, how it understands data and how it processes data. At the center, we're really, really lucky because everyone properly brought into, I want data. You know, I know I need this data in order to make these decisions. It's just making sure that the systems are there in such a way to be able to deliver that information to them. Because what you do tend to lose quite quickly without all of that really boring stuff to most people, not necessarily me, but all that stuff around governance, trust, reliability, you know, being able to put a number out to the business and stand hand on heart and say, that is true, that is accurate, that won't change. You only need a few disasters along the way where, oh, sorry, no, that's wrong. Um, can we have that back, please? We've got to do that again. Or, you know, something else happens and maybe you lose a bit of data here, there, or everywhere, or something wasn't quite tracked properly or, you know, Without that sort of governance and that rigor around the team, all of a sudden you lose a lot of trust and reliability. It sets your data transformation efforts back massively. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge, that kind of trust, building trust within the business, being there when they need you in such a form that allows you've got to, you've got to effectively be a mind reader. You need to know what they're going to be asking for in six months' time so you can make sure that it's available for them when they get around to needing that piece of information. How important is it to have the visualization of that right so that it's accessible for everybody who needs it, do you think? Is that a big part of the project, do you think, of that transformation? Yeah, no, it is definitely. I think we've been through various phases of this. So, you know, your initial phase of migrating from massive Excel sheets of information that you're sending out and going, look, isn't it great? And everyone's looking at an Excel sheet going, I have no idea what you're talking about, through to some standard visualizations where People go to, you know, a handful of times, see things are going in kind of the direction they want them to do and then never revisit them again to maybe how trying to get it to that next sort of level of how do you actually present that information back to people to keep them interested is a massive challenge. I know a lot of companies talk about things like, you know, lunch and learn sessions and getting the analyst out into the business. We're not blessed with a massive data team of thousands of analysts and, you know, massive budgets. So what does make the difference is just making you publicly available to talk through stuff, to almost be the voice of the report and being able to recall that information on demand in a meeting at the drop of a hat. To be fair, lockdown's been a blessing for that because you can have a million <laughs> windows open, right? And you can just be like, how many subscribers have we got on product date? You'd be like, yeah, of course, we've got 647 <laughs> as of last you know, you can't do that in a meeting room. You look like a fool. That sort of data literacy, that understanding of what your business is, is something we're really trying to promote. We call it know your business, but it's just a one pager, all the top numbers, you know, how many subscribers you got, what's your average renewal rate, what's your newsletter size is, that sort of thing. The most basic kind of information possible. So I kind of go on the basis of what can we do to make things easier? So when it comes to the analysts, I'm trying to get those guys to be embedded within the team. So when the project teams are starting to look at stuff, they're infusing that understanding into the product or project delivery. They're bringing back that understanding of what the business is actually trying to do. And we can then 
make incremental changes to what we're doing in order to make sure that we can answer some of those questions or at least expectations are being met across the business that you're going to be fine doing that but you you're absolutely not going to get any more information around there unless you want to put this massive project in and do this piece of work and we do do some fairly wide ranging technology changes we've done quite a few over the past few years and they're not a lot of fun they tend to suck up all the resource so what happens then is you get this void of i can't do anything now because the central teams are busy doing this particular type of technical implementation so the business almost has to stop and wait for that to all finish and then as soon as that finishes you get the tsunami of data requests come in which you're not prepared to deal with because you're still mopping up from the end of the last project that's again where trust and everything starts to fall down so pretty much and this is where my background around business and marketing kind of come in is i tend to sit more as an interface to the business than i do as an interface to the data is translating what the projects and things are doing what volumes we have what approaches we can take in order to answer the questions yeah it sounds like with some of the things that you've mentioned there that that has been a hard lesson to learn but you've been in that situation and things have gone pear-shaped let's not go there again has it been a baptism by fire over the last five years would you say the baptism of fire is more around understanding the prioritization of where you sit within a business. Now, I had this thing where, you know, phase two never happens in a project. So when you're walking through something and they're like, yeah, that's great, but we'll put that in phase two. We originally had it put in phase one, but we're not going to quite hit that. So we're going to move that out. That tends to be more of the analytic type jobs in favor of the front end working properly. Obviously, people being able to buy stuff, people being able to register and that user experience, which is absolutely right. The frustrations tend to come from the fact that you always feel, to some degree, second fiddle. I think it's, you know you're going to get asked questions on this later, and you know you're going to have to say, I'm sorry, we can't deliver that because it's actually, it wasn't included as part of the project, or we weren't able to get that in on time. I was going to ask a little bit about shoring up sometimes you haven't got the information because either it's gone into you know sort of it's the next phase or you get to the end of it and somebody says well we really could have done with that and how do you go about scoping out a project as best you can to make sure that you have you know shored that all up so that you've got as much information as you can is there a process that you go through to ensure that when you're scoping out those individual projects that they are going to deliver on what you're going to need or what you're going to be asked for there are control mechanisms and things in place with project management techniques that allow you to ensure that certain things get picked up at certain times. And I think data is no different. It's the same as any other part of the business trying to deploy something, making sure that business requirements are met from an early time. That being said, I'd be a complete liar if I said that that happened in every single case. (laughs) Who works in a very similar role will understand the day before something goes live, you get the email that says, oh, we're we're launching this tomorrow. And you're okay, I know I'm going to be asked for some stats on that. What have you put in place? Yeah, we phase two. Okay, so I've got no data for it. Everyone's going to start looking at me like an idiot. I'm an idiot. I can't answer any questions on what you've done. That's just the way of life. But by pushing people out into the product teams, you know, you get those early warning signals. That's all you can do. Just make sure you're engaged. And I think if someone's putting a new product in, that. It's going to be based on a business goal, right? There'll be a very specific forecast already generated for that. Central doesn't spend money 
on stuff at a whim. If it's going to throw some cash at something, that you can believe there's a very good reason behind it, um, why it's being done. So by engaging earlier in that process on any new project or any new piece of work that gets done, that's probably easier because people want to know whether their business goal is being hit. Because ultimately, that's how they're going to increase their budgets next year. That's going to spend more money on marketing. That's going to grow their own side of the business. So they are more likely to engage with an analyst earlier on and say, what does this look like? What do I need to have in place in order to prove that what I've said there works? The harder bit is on the established businesses where they're just making incremental changes and not in any way blaming dev teams, but quite often analytical implementations are thrown in with third-party services, heavy JavaScript-based stuff. Developers don't like the fact that you've just installed 50 or 60 different types of service or tag that runs alongside their beautiful hand-coded JavaScript. So, you know, slowing stuff down, making stuff potentially fail for some reason, generating errors, all that kind of stuff. If you don't have a relationship with that team then it's very easy for them to just start not engaging with you. And then that's when things will sort of start to fall down. So it's about sort of solid project management stuff, making sure you're engaged and involved in the business as you should be. But then relationship building, being out there and chatting to everyone, making sure you know what people are trying to do, understanding why they're trying to do it more than anything else. Would you say internally and externally that data is the new marketing currency? The new currency is almost driven by the velocity at which point you can get that information now. I used to work on clustering exercises that maybe take a couple of weeks to run. You'd put in something, you may need an analyst then to go and spend some time looking at it and figure it through. And tools and techniques have changed now. So you can run almost in constant real-time lead scoring classification of every single individual person that comes your way rather than trying to then take something offline, work out how everything fits together. That's where the difference is. I would say it's less data is the new currency and it's more data literacy is the new currency. When marketing automation came about, I think it was some degree, everyone thought, oh, great, I'll automate this. Automate equals less work, right? So not as much to do. Whereas actually automation means massively increasing your level of data literacy. How many marketers have ever been on a data literacy course? How many marketers understand what their data literacy is? Do they really understand the intricacies of all of the various ways that a marketing technology platform could be used and harnessed? You know, Centaur is massively guilty of buying in some big, big packages and not necessarily then following up with using all the benefits those packages bring. So I think Data is the new currency in as much as it's the understanding and the use of that data within the technology that is now available to people. If you can find those people, those people that really understand that, then there's some really forward-thinking marketers at Centaur who are quite happy to pick up on projects that should be data team projects. They're quite happy to pick up and run with that kind of information and that they're asking very specific questions of data they know where things are falling over and they're pulling you up on it as if you should be the people that are supplying this kind of information in that way to this product. And that in itself makes life a lot easier for a data team. From a data literacy level, if you've got people that are able to talk that kind of language and and engage with you, they can really share with what the business is trying to achieve and ultimately how they want it to work within that piece of technology, then 
that makes life a lot easier. That sort of brings me on nicely to a sort of question that I would like to ask, which is if somebody's trying to get into the industry, what sort of skills or experience do you think they should have or what kind of things would you be looking for? We've looked to put in place a number of hiring strategies across the last few years, especially. I think we've seen, everyone's seen a scarcity of resource across the business. I think the key thing when it comes to skills, if we're looking to hire very specific skill sets, we have to round that out quite a lot. We're looking for actually what are the transferable skills, what other industry areas or types of business and things like that that people may have worked in before that might have experience that is relevant to us. We've brought in maths grads in the past, and that's been really useful. They're quick learners. They don't necessarily know the ins and outs of all the pieces of marketing technology and how to get the data out or, you know, they're blank slates. Effectively, might have done a bit of coding or something in university. Have equal success with people that are sociology graduates that have got a really nice way of talking to people and getting information out of people and are keen to learn. You know if someone's quick, if they've got it, if they understand a good attention to detail, they're willing to learn, they're interested in the industry, you figure it out. You kind of sit down and work out what's happening. You know, you then look at what the causes of that could be. Then you look into the sort of the issue that's surrounding it. And then, you know, you look to put in some sort of resolution. It's that kind of mindset that you're looking for more than anything else. Because ultimately, skills can be trained. If they're not interested, they're not going to bother. You're just wasting everyone's time at that point. It's people who are passionate about data rather than just thinking of it as a day job. The people that are good, they're still talked about at Centaur. You know, these are grads that came and spent two, three years with us did some stuff, really made an impact. And now we've gone on, I mean, they're earning more than I am now, but you know, (laughs) three years later, but you know, they've got that passion for it, but that's what shows through. So they're remembered by people. One of the manager directors of particular parts of the business, they've gone on and done something else somewhere else. You know, you start to get those phone calls come around. Oh, we're looking for someone, you know, we've got an opening for this particular role. Who are you going to recommend? Who's the people? Oh, we had that grad in. They were amazing. You know, it doesn't really matter if they didn't have the direct skills. They picked up this thing really, really quickly. I'll happily recommend them to you, you know. And that sort of thing is invaluable. I think for any graduate, that networking side, listening to what the business wants, not trying to over-deliver on everything, just get known for a few core things. And then, you know, you set for life, practically the data world, don't you? That's it from then on in. It's a smaller industry than people realise, isn't it, at the moment? (laughs) Absolutely. My last question, just before we finish, is I just wondered about the sort of moving to the cloud space. What are sort of the big business drivers that you've seen for that? How do you empower an organisation to kind of really embrace that? We're all working in the same direction. I don't know why anyone would ever want to see a server room again. (laughs) It's allowed us to start to really kind of experiment with different techniques and things that we can then potentially bring into production. So some of the stuff that Red Olive are working with us around data cleansing and processing, where we're trying to really make sense of the first party data that we've got, for example, we'll use Red Olive to help us to create a sort of an end-to-end process for that cleansing, working through data in a sort of data pipeline. It's fairly standard stuff, right? There's nothing particularly exciting about that in itself but having the availability of the sort of aws tools or other providers tools allows us to maybe do some of the stuff that was manual in a different way so we're looking at potentially using some 
AI approaches to even data cleansing, you know, handling our job title classifications. We've used it quite successfully for classifying editorial, so training models to understand how to bucket certain pieces of content so that you don't have to then worry about editorial teams doing what they should be doing from a data perspective and for being able to sort of organize and manage our almost the metadata that sits behind the information that we gather using these sort of AI type machine learning tools allows us to really sort of move away from those manual jobs. Would you say is that's the thing that's most exciting about kind of being able to do stuff that quickly with the AI space? I think so. My background is not analysis. The kind of using machine learning for generating certain types of propensity analysis or stuff like that, I have to leave that to the specialists. So, you know, I'm a man of a certain age. I have to sort of respect the fact that I've only got a certain amount of capacity to really get the grips with this stuff. But when it comes to the nuts and bolts stuff that I have been doing over the last 20 years that I have experience in data cleansing, integration work, all that kind of stuff, then finding opportunities in the cloud tools to really sort of leverage how that makes my life a lot easier that I'm very interested in. An interesting take from Ben there. Join us for the next episode of the Red Olive Fibonacci podcast, where we'll be joined by another data expert sharing their thoughts on the latest trends in AI and big data, along with some great hints and tips. Make sure you subscribe to the Red Olive Fibonacci podcast from wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss it. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Nikki Rudd. See you next time. 